But we're going to get into God's Word here. Um, if you need a Bible, as normal, you can raise your hand and we'll, we'll get one to you. Um, thank you, brother. We're going to be in Luke's Gospel this morning. It's going to be Luke chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 18. We're going to read to verse 22. So Luke 9, verses 18 to 22. I'd love for you to find that. Uh, read it with me. We'll pray and uh, dive in. While you're finding it, maybe I should just say, Paul, that was awesome. You know, praise God for, for the ways that he, uh, he saves his people. Right? Thanks for sharing, man. All right, you ready? Let's read. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. But then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Let's pray, guys. God, we gather this morning because of what you have done for us. Lord, we are sinners and we were on our way to hell. But because you interposed your son through him in between your wrath and us. God, we are now on the road to glory. And it's all to the praise of your grace. So that we ask right now as we gather that you would open our eyes a little bit wider for some of us, maybe for the first time for others of us, perhaps to the glory and the wonder of a crucified Christ, the Lamb of God, whom you sent to take away the sins of the world. And not just in broad generalities, but my sin, our sin. And we rejoice to know this lamb. We rejoice to lay our hands on you. Like Paul just said, you are our treasure. Yes, you are Savior. Yes, you are Lord. But you are also the desire and the satisfaction of our hearts. So pray. God, in these moments, if there are distractions for people in sun or wind or noise or 
anything at all. God, I pray that you would remove those, that you would give us a focus that only the Holy Spirit can bring upon a people as they contemplate your word. It's in your name that we ask these things. Amen. I'm going to jump right in. Um, the, the scene here in our text, if you noticed back in verse 18, begins with Jesus praying alone. And details like that, especially in Luke, are not meant to just be passed over, uh, read over quickly. Um, Countless times in Luke's gospel, as a matter of fact, he makes the connection for us between Jesus's prayer life and his mission and ministry. And that's precisely what is happening here. Now it happened that as he was praying alone. Jesus is regularly seen praying alone, and it's in this place alone with his father that it seems his his uh, sight is kind of cleared. His his vision uh, is fixed yet again on the father's will for him. And the cross that he's been sent to bear for the sins of the world, we might be prone to think that because he is the son of God. Um, the will of God would be easy for him. But he doesn't struggle much with it. But what we see actually is quite the opposite. That as the shadow of the cross is going to kind of loom darker and darker, thicker upon him, as it gets closer and closer to the time, his prayers, his struggles, his agony gets increasingly acute. It's... Hard, And it's in this place of prayer alone with his father that he not only is clarified on his father's mission for him, but given strength to prevail, strength to carry on. As I think I said in a previous message a long while back, he retreats, as it were, to the desolate place. And it's there that... uh, He has revealed to him the divine imperative. God's will, God's plan. And so before I even really get into the main point of uh, what we'll be dealing with this morning, I I did just want to say it is on our knees that God will clarify and strengthen us to accomplish his will. It's on our knees that God will reveal what he has for us and also enable, equip us to do it. The, um, if I could give you a one-liner on this. If we are not on our knees, we will be shaky on our feet. That's one of the things we learn from our Savior is that prayer... In other words, getting on our knees in prayer alone with the Father is how we get stable when we get up off our knees and we walk into the, the inevitable troubles and difficulties of life. 
If we are not on our knees, we will be shaky on our feet. We will either not know God's will for us, which way we ought to go, or we will veer from it. When it gets hard, when it gets uncomfortable, when it gets difficult. It's in this place of prayer that God equips his people to continue on, just like he does with Jesus here. And this convicting word for me, perhaps that's why I bring it in, even though it's tangential to what I'm going to be looking at, really. When's the last time you really got alone with God in prayer? We can't expect to be Christians strong in the faith, strong in love, strong on mission, even to the point of death, if we're not there. So it's praying alone here that Jesus is steeled in his resolve to head towards the cross. And it's also in this place of prayer with his father that he discerns the time has come to start speaking about this crucifixion about this death about this end and beginning to his disciples Um, up to this point in luke's gospel jesus has not been speaking overtly about his coming departure his coming death he knows the disciples aren't going to like it he knows they're not going to understand it he knows they're going to push back on it but now because of time with the father in prayer he knows he needs to start disclosing it to them because it's coming and they need to be ready in some ways just like he does so the prayer time gives way in our text to discussion namely as we looked at last week who do the crowds say that i am there in verse 18 and then he turns it on them and gets a little bit more personal in verse 20. But who do you say that I am? And this discussion gives way to confession. Peter replies, you are the Christ of God. And we would think at this point that the angels would celebrate, that Jesus would high five, because this is really the first time that confession has been taken on human lips. But that's not the way that Jesus responds fully because he knows that even though that confession is correct, Peter and these guys have no idea what it really means. So here's what Jesus is going to do as we see. He first responds by telling them actually to keep quiet on the matter. Did you see that? Hey, okay. Wonderful, but now don't tell anyone. Peter's like, I thought I got the answer right. Don't tell anyone, Jesus says. We've got to fill this out a little bit more. You're not going to like it. Other people aren't going to like it. No one was expecting what I'm about to say. Let me tell you what the Christ has come to do. So he says, keep quiet. And then he starts to fill this out for them there in verse 22, which is where we're going to focus this morning. The son of man, he says, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. In other words, you thought the Christ would conquer And he will. More than you could even know, he will. 
But before the Christ will conquer, he must first be crucified. In this single verse, we essentially have really an outline, a summary of the Messiah's whole career. He will suffer many things. He will be rejected. He will be killed. He will die. He will be raised. But here's the question that's going to set up the whole trajectory for this message. And I want you to hear it. Why the must in that sentence? Why the must in verse 22? Why does Jesus say the son of man must suffer, be rejected, be killed and be raised? Why the necessity? The rigid or the rigid. What were they going for? Rugged, I guess. The rigid, unrelenting, inflexible necessity of a crucified Christ, what I am calling in this title, the, the divine must. Why the divine must over this idea of a crucified Christ? Our text here is, is really just the tip of the iceberg on this matter. Jesus is going to say things like this all over the place from here on out. I'm going to give you just a couple examples here, but we're going to see more as we continue. Luke 13, 33. Jesus is speaking of his journey towards Jerusalem and the cross. And he says this, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. I've got to. I must go to Jerusalem and die. He says. Or Luke 17, 24 to 25, speaking to his disciples now of his second coming, Jesus says, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the son of man be in his day. But first, he says, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He must Oh, I'm going to come in glory, but before I do, I must suffer and die. I must be crucified. And the question looms large over this message now is why? Why the must? That these things will be is one thing. Okay, they will be. But why must they be? Now, I imagine that the answer that probably is coming to your mind at this point um, is this. Well, Nick, it's quite clear. We've been in church for a little while, most of us. We've heard the gospel. We understand the issues. We get the must. He's a holy, righteous God. I'm a sinner, therefore, to forgive me, he must crush his son, sacrifice his son in my place. To which I say, in one sense, a hearty amen. And that's right. 
But it's not the whole picture. And when we really step back and think about it, that answer is not complete. Here's what I mean. There is no must when it comes to God's mercy for you. The very meaning of mercy is I don't deserve this. I deserve something else. But God, not because of some must or requirement on my part. Decides in free and loving grace to save me anyways. We are born, it seems, because we're born in sin with this warped understanding that God owes us. A good life owes us blessings, owes us the sunshine, owes us forgiveness. But he doesn't owe us forgiveness at all. There is no must when it comes to God's mercy. He could have left us to perish for our sin and he would have been right. In doing so, he could have cut humanity off once its root went bad in Adam. He nowhere needed to love and move towards, incarnate, be rejected, uh, be killed for us. There is no must when it comes to the mercy of God. It's not technically required. It's just an overflow Of grace. From the loving heart of a father. For his wayward creation. So that's not going to fully do it for me. When it comes to this must. And why it's there. So the question still stands. Why according to Jesus. Must such things be so. And I've got three reasons for us. You'll see them in your handout there. First. The plan from eternity. Second, the promise in Scripture. And third, the problem of forgiveness. The problem of forgiveness. Let's dive into these one at a time. First, the plan from eternity. Now, um, these things must be so, I am going to argue from Scripture, because... God has planned them from all eternity. This is perhaps the most difficult of the reasons to understand, but it is the most fundamental. This is really the starting point uh, for this must that Jesus speaks of here. I'm referring to a plan that began uh, really before the world ever was. A plan that is made, is drafted and agreed upon between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Theologians in times past have called this the covenant of redemption. But it's not a covenant made between God and man. It's actually a covenant made between the persons of the Trinity, if you will. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit agreeing to redeem. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit aware even before creation 
that men will fall, that men will err, that men will go wayward and rebel. Father, Son, Spirit agreeing to redeem. We will get our people. We will get our bride. We will restore all things. The Father plans it. The Son will execute it. The Spirit will apply it to His people. To the praise of the glory of His grace. This is the plan that's being worked out even in this very moment here this morning. The stuff that God is doing in our midst is not an afterthought. It's not a off the cuff, shoot from the hip. What do I do to save the world? It's been his plan from the beginning to save. Now, let me show you this because I recognize there very well might be some pushback on the matter. But I want you to see you're not pushing back on me if this sounds crazy. You're just pushing on to the word of God. The full account of this agreement or this plan is not laid out for us in the Bible, but it is hinted at all over the place. I'm going to show you some of these places right now. Perhaps one of the clearest is in John 17, when we get the privilege of essentially overhearing Jesus praying to his father as he contemplates the cross that he is about to bear in Jerusalem. He says this, Father, now listen, listen carefully. If you have a Bible, go to it. John 17, verse one. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, I think what I'm after here becomes plain if we actually kind of walk from verse five back up this text to verse one. And I'll show you briefly what I mean. Verse 5, Jesus speaks of his existence with the Father before the world ever existed. He was there in glory with the Father. Then, up in verse, verses 3 through 4, we are told that the Father sent Jesus to carry out what? This plan that they drafted, it seems, from all eternity and that Jesus accomplished the work that the father sent him or gave him to do. So here I am with the father from all eternity. Then he sends me on a mission, a mission we agreed upon from all eternity. And I am now about to fully accomplish that. And then up in verse two, we see the goal of this mission, the goal of this plan the son has come to what? To give eternal life to all whom the father has given him. 
He will redeem his people. He will redeem the elect. He will put his grace upon sinful men and restore them to himself. And then finally, up in verse 1, we are told how the Son will ultimately accomplish this. Do you catch that? He says, the hour has come. What hour? What is the hour Jesus is referring to? In John, it is clear, he's talking about the hour of his death. In other words, here's what I want you to see. It's as if from all eternity, the Father and the Son have have, have so planned the, the work of redemption that they can even put a time stamp on the very moment of the Son's death of the cross. The hour has come, Jesus says. It's time for me to die. It's time to complete what we planned from all eternity when I was with you before the world ever was. This is why, let me just give you some more text here, some more Bible. This is why Peter in 1 Peter 1.20 could speak of Jesus as the lamb foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last times for our sake. The Lamb, foreknown before the foundation of the world. Not an afterthought. An agreed upon covenant plan to redeem. This is why John in Revelation 13.8 could write of people's names being written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. There are names written in a book Before the foundation of the world. And the name of the book. Or at least the book belongs to. The lamb who was slain. This is why Paul in 2 Timothy 1.9 could say. That God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works. But because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This grace, your salvation, is so sure. It is not rooted. Yes, it has existential moments where we turn to God and say, man, forgive me. And we receive Christ and we are born again. There is a moment in time where you are saved. But that has roots, Paul and John and Peter would say, in all of eternity. From before the ages began. That's when grace was given to us in Christ Jesus. As God contemplated the fall. And planned to redeem. This is why we read in Acts 2.23 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Definite plan. That's why Jesus is delivered up. That's the reason for the must back there in Luke 9. Definite plan demanded the deliverance of the Son. 
This is why Jesus himself would say around the table during the Last Supper with his disciples, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Luke 22, verse 22. I'm just trying to show you behind this must that Jesus speaks about lies the plan of Almighty God to redeem. And what God plans must come to pass. Now, as I thought about this, I recognize that uh, plans, just because someone plans something, doesn't mean it's going to come to pass. Right? Anyone got kids ever tried to plan a vacation? I try to plan to get out the door at, you know, five o'clock and it's six o'clock. Things are not going well according to my plan. Or if I could tell you one of the most depressing moments of my day, every day, 5.30, the time when my work day ends, the time when I kind of look back at what I had planned to accomplish at the beginning of the day and compare that with what I actually got done, right? And it, it never fails. I wake up with the most naive optimism every day. In the morning, I am this incredible optimist. I will make the list every day. I'm going to, listen, I'm going to answer every email. Some of you still have emails that I haven't gotten back to. It's been weeks, right? You guys are like, oh, this is what's going on in his world. I'm, I'm going to answer, I'm going to get my inbox to zero today. I'm going to call everybody back. I'm going to meet with all the leaders. I'm going to plan, I, I, I got a plan, you know, how we're going to bring on more elders. You know, I, while I'm at it, since I'll have enough time, I think I'll probably just plan out my, my sermons for the next of, uh, the rest of this year, right? That's kind of how I begin. And then maybe by the end of the day, I've got one of those things or half of those things, half of one of those things done. But it's not that way with God. You understand? It's the difference between God and us. What he plans is not just kind of like this maybe, like there is with mine, might be, could be, would be nice if. No, it will be. It must be. That's why James, in an awesome text, when he's trying to explain how we ought to uh, take our will and relate our will to God's will, he says this. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, and here he goes, he's teaching us wisdom here. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Why? What is he teaching us there? Your will? There's a big maybe, a big question mark over that plan. But God's will? Well, it must be. His plan will come uh, to fruition. If you live, if, if he wills that you live, you must live. If he wills that you die, you must die. And in the case of the son, if he has planned this from all eternity... That the Son would come 
suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, and be raised. Well, it must be, brothers and sisters. That's one reason for the divine must back in Luke 9, verse 22. The plan from all eternity. One implication for your life on this. Let me just tell you. God's hand will never drop you. You hear that? If you are carried by your hand, if he puts his hand on you. That hand will never drop you. There are times where I'm throwing Levi up in the air, having some fun. And I know Megan doesn't trust these hands, right? Levi trusts, and that's because he's ignorant. He doesn't know how dangerous it really is to be thrown five feet up in the air and caught. He loves it. Megan knows these hands aren't all that trustworthy. But, but let me tell you something. If God has you in his hands, he will not drop you. And... and, and, and This is true no matter how chaotic, no matter how spiraling out, no matter how confused your circumstances feel, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult, he does not drop his children. Because he put his hand on you before the ages began. Remember that text in Ephesians that says, man, we've been chosen in him before the foundation of the, of the world. That he might, what? Present us to himself at the end of the world, spotless and blameless. Did you catch that? Because he has chosen us, because he has put his hand on us in grace, not by anything in us, but because of his son and the work of his son. He's going to get us to the end. No matter how hard. It is my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. John 20, John 10, 27, 28. Reason number two for the divine must in verse 22. And as is typical with me, first one's the longest one. And now I got to kick things into high gear. <laughs> Let me give you this second reason. They're all going to kind of build on that. First one anyways. The promise in scripture. Why the divine must? Why must the son suffer, be rejected, be killed, be raised? The promise in scripture. God has promised these things. So if in the plan of God, you have something that took place outside of time from all eternity in the promises of God, you have him now speaking about this eternal plan into time and into space to people. And. Well, the long and short of it is. If God speaks it, if God promises it. It must be. It must be that way. He's been promising to bring bring redemption by way of a redeemer since the very beginning. 
And Jesus himself is going to ground this must of his crucifixion, his resurrection in the scriptures written of him beforehand. We are going to see that Jesus says this must be because it has all it has been written of me. Let me show you just a few of these. And again, you see how the plan is now expressed in the promises. And just as the plan must be now also then the promises. Luke 18, verses 31 to 33. Just listen to this. Jesus says to the twelve, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. He says, this stuff must be because it's been written about me before. It's got to be accomplished, brothers and sisters. Luke 22, verse 37, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes from Isaiah and he was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, that scripture about this servant being numbered with the transgressors, even though he was innocent, must be fulfilled in me. And he goes on for what is written about me has its fulfillment If God said it, if God promised it, it's got to come to pass. Or last example, Luke 24, verses 44 to 46. Jesus speaking again to his disciples now after his resurrection says this. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. He grounds the necessity of this, this, this life, death and resurrection in the promise of God in the scriptures that have come before. It must be this way because it has been written because God said it would be this way. Now, again, just because someone says something doesn't mean it must be anyone been promised something that didn't come to pass. Well, if you've ever listened to a presidential election or debate listened in, you've experienced promises made that don't come to pass. That's how man does things. Again, there's a big maybe over our promises. God's promises are sure. They are certain. Paul would kind of wrap all this up for us in um, Titus chapter one, verses one through three, or one through yeah, one through three. He opens up his letter to Titus this way: Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. Now, here's what I want you to hear, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and has now at the proper time manifested it. Did you hear that? He said, God promised in accordance with this plan from before the ages began 
And because God never lies, at the right time, here Jesus is. To do all that was written for him in the book. In other words, the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, be killed, be raised. Because God has promised. And if he does not do those things, God is a liar. And he's not. So, one more implication that I can draw from this and apply to our lives. God's word will never fail you. There will be times, I've felt it, where you will be tempted to think, and you will be almost certain God has lied to you. We laugh at Israel and the story of the Exodus and how they say, man, God, you brought us out here to kill us. You lied when you said you were going to save. This is hard. We laugh at them because we know where God is taking them. We know how the story ends. We know that Joshua on the other side of the Jordan River in the land of promise will say to Israel, not one word of Yahweh has failed. All has been fulfilled. Look at what he has done. We know that. And so we laugh at Israel. But man, we often don't know that for our own, sto- for our own story. And our own lives. And there's something in us in the, in the cold dark of, of trying times. That says, God, you lied. I come to church and they talk about love. They talk about, they talk about grace. They talk about a good plan. They talk about your nearness and your intimacy. Everyone's singing with hands raised and looks like they are having this intimate moment with you. And I feel like you've abandoned me. Let me tell you something. God's word will never fail you. It must. His promises to you must be accomplished. He will see that to it that they are fulfilled. Even if it costs him dearly. Even if it costs him his son's life. That's the point. This is just... The start of what God is doing. This is, this is the essence of it. But from here, the fact that he would crush his own son to uphold his word, his promises to his people, should convince us he will, he will withhold no good thing. He will stop at nothing to make sure his word will not fail you in the end. Third, Reasons. So, first we've seen why this divine must when it comes to a crucified Christ. Well, the plan from all eternity. Second, the promises in Scripture. Now, finally, perhaps the one that initially seems a little bit confusing to you. The problem of forgiveness. And this is where we're going to close. The problem of forgiveness. 
you might not immediately know where I'm going with this. But um, I think Romans 3, 25 to 26, uh, is what kind of brings this out in the, in the most plainest way. Let me read it to you. Romans 3, 25 to 26. Now, Paul's thinking is heavy. So you've got to stretch for a moment. Do it. Crack your neck, crack your knuckles. Here we go. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation or a wrath-removing sacrifice. Okay? God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Why? This was to show God's righteousness, Paul says. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I don't suppose you caught exactly what I'm after. So I'm going to walk you through it here for a moment. The crux of the matter this problem of forgiveness is brought out there at the end of verse 25, where we read this, that God in his divine forbearance had passed over former sins. Did you hear that? This is going to be huge. Why did Jesus need to die? This is huge in Paul's mind. Because God had passed over former sins, namely since Adam Since the fall of Adam and Eve, where even there God did not give them all that they deserved, but passed over their sins in many ways. Since Adam, God has been forgiving sinners. And what what, what Paul is saying here is that that is a big problem. Why? Because it makes God look unrighteous. It makes God look unjust. It makes God look like he has little regard for his own name and his own glory. Because if he allows lawbreakers to just go free, roam the streets, you're forgiven. If he allows those who trample His name and His glory into the dirt. Does it not mean that He allows even His own being His own, that He looks like an unjust judge? His glory just kind of disintegrates. He is a liar. He is unfair. He is unholy. To put an illustration on this, if a judge... Let's a murderer walk, knowing full well that that man is guilty. Is it not true that the city, the county, the country would call for that judge to be removed from his bench, from his post? He's unjust. We don't want murderers on the street pedophiles on the street. You don't just let them walk. (laughs) You make them pay. We know that. But if God 
The judge of the universe, supposedly, has been letting criminals, sinners, lawbreakers go for millennia now, as Paul's writing this. What kind of judge does that then make him? You see the problem of forgiveness? You see the issue? I mean, this is a massive problem. The justice, the righteousness, the holiness, the the glory of God is at stake in this matter. It's this problem of forgiveness that necessitates the cross of Christ. That accounts for this must that Jesus speaks about. God, it, the picture in my mind is as if God is knowing that the sun would come with a view that the sun would come in times past has been kind of running up the credit card of heaven, as it were, with every lamb slain, every every sin passed over. We know from Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats doesn't forgive sin. It's almost like God running his credit card. Okay, I'll pay for that. I'll pay for that. I'll pay for that. But at some time, at some moment in time, the the collections come knocking on the door. And that's what Jesus is. Let's balance this account. God has said he would pay it. If, If I don't go to the cross, God defaults on his payments and he goes to debtor's prison. He will pay. That's why I must go to vindicate the glory of my father. You see it there in Romans three, that this is the issue. The cross uh, uh, is is to to uh, relieve is why we read uh, two times. Uh, verse twenty five. First, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Why? To show God's righteousness. He's not unjust. Or again, in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he can be both just righteous and the justifier, forgiver of the ungodly. How is he going to relieve this problem of forgiveness? He's going to take our ungodliness, take our unrighteousness, take our unholiness, take our uncleanness and put it upon his son. And then on the cross, he will exact all the things we owed to him for our sin, the penalty, the payment. He will exact it from his son. Jesus pays it all. Jesus makes good on everything that's been charged to the heavenly credit card throughout the millennia before and the millennia since. This is why in the agony of Gethsemane, as Jesus is praying alone again with the Father, and like I said, it's increasingly acute in its pain, sweating drops of blood, he would fall to his knees and say what? God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. If there's any other way. In other words, 
Must this be? Does this have to be? The divine must? Can we kind of massage that a little bit? Because this is going to be the hardest thing I have ever gone through and will ever go through. And the implicit answer of the Father is that there is no other way. These things must be, son. Because, why? We planned it from all eternity. We've promised it throughout all the scriptures. The forgiveness of the sins of the world hangs on this moment. And my name, my glory, as righteous, holy, just, perfect, demands it. Therefore, the Son of Man must suffer all things, be rejected, be killed, and be raised. One final implication from this for you. I know that some of us feel filthy for what we have done. But I want you to hear this. God's son will never turn you away. Remember that in John 6? He says, man, if anyone comes to me, I will not cast them out. I don't care what they've done. I don't care how many times they sin. He would try to drill this into Peter's mind. Seventy times seven, Peter. In other words, just multiply that out forever. If a person comes, the same sin issue, and genuinely from the heart of sin, I'm sorry, I forgive him every time. I will never Turn that person away. Why? Why do we have such assurance? Jesus already paid for it. It's already paid for. There's no more atoning. There's no more penalty. We often feel that, right? We can kind of feel the unjustness of this forgiveness. Actually, sometimes. And so we want to pay God back. We make promises. Okay, you forgive me. I'll do this. And I'll get right. Jesus says, listen, just come to me. I'll make you right. You just bring me your junk. I will never turn you away. We're going to sing it, I think, in a few moments. But just hear it now. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. You're in this room, you're in Christ, white as snow. We're not in a room, I suppose. (laughs) You're here with with me this morning. You're not in Christ. But you hear the words that are coming out of my mouth. And you hear the voice of the shepherd calling you. I am telling you. You drop to your knees. You ask for his mercy. White as snow. In a moment, grace streaming from the cross. Let's pray. God, we 
rejoice that you did not default on your payment, on your plan, or your promise. God, we rejoice that you have saved us from all eternity. Names written in your book. Not because of anything done by us in righteousness, but because of your own mercy and grace. I pray we would stand in awe that you would come for us. In your name we pray. Amen.